Support for today's show comes from Collection by Michael Strahan, available exclusively at JCPenney. Yes, Michael Strahan, the former NFL player, now daytime talk show guy. Collection by Michael Strahan makes it easy to look good and feel your best no matter the occasion. Collection includes suit separates, sports coats, dress shirts, neckwear, belts, accessories, basics, denim, luggage, got luggage, and shoes, big and tall, and boy sizes too. Collection by Michael Strahan is available exclusively at JCPenney. Visit a store near you or go to jcp.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Matthew Schreier is on his way home from Syria after spending months photographing the war going on there, when, just 45 minutes from the safety of the Turkish border, he was taken prisoner by the Al-Nusra Front, a branch of Al-Qaeda in Syria. For the next seven months, he was starved and tortured in six different prison camps, yet he survived, becoming the first Westerner to escape Al-Qaeda. Today, he talks to the military about what he learned through his experience. Today on the show, I talked to Matt about his book, The Dawn Prayer, which details what he learned about how to survive a Syrian terrorist prison, as well as the lessons he learned and what not to do from a fellow American with whom he was held captive. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash dawnprayer. Matt Schreier, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you just came out with the book, The Dawn Prayer, or How to Survive in a Secret Syrian Terrorist Prison. You were the first Westerner to escape Al-Qaeda from Syria. It's an incredible story. Before we get to how you got captured, to the, the escape, what were you doing in Syria in 2012? Because you're not a military guy. No, I'm not. I was there to do freelance photography. I was there about a month before visiting the refugee camps. I was in southern Turkey. I went into Syria for the first time to Azaz. And then from there, it was Jordan, where the Zatari camp was at the time, or still is. It was probably 150,000 people there. And I mean, what was crazy, I mean, so this is not too long ago, but the Syrian conflict, it's as I was reading the book, I was reminded how complex the conflict is. For those who aren't familiar with it, like what was going on in Syria at the time, and is still going on today? It's always been complex. It's even more complex now because of how many additional players have come to the table. But back then, I got there in late 2012. And at the time, you basically had the Syrian government fighting the Free Syrian Army and other factions like the Al-Nusra Front, who who were the guys that captured me, and a lot of other splinter groups. And at the time, the FSA was the main fighting force, the biggest one, and they were kicking ass back then. They were pretty much controlling 85% of Aleppo, which is where I was, and people were defecting left and right. And it, looked, it looked pretty good for them. It looked like they were going to win any day now. But since the government had an air force, that's what prevented them from actually being able to overwhelm them and actually take take over the country. So uh, in the months that followed, that's when you saw like a real rise in the extreme groups with uh, ISIS and mostly Al-Nusra, who had me in 2013. So, I mean, this what, what sounds, it's interesting, it's like there's like a mixture of like good guys and bad guys, bad guys who could be good guys, good guys who are also bad guys. Is that kind of what it was like? It was just very fluid? Yeah. I, I mean, it, depending, on, <laughs> depending on how you define a bad guy, pretty much everyone's a bad guy. 
if you look at the term, right, everybody tortures everybody over there. That's just a basic common interrogation practice. I mean, there's, there's no group over there that doesn't torture people. So, I mean, if you think torture is bad, then everybody's bad. But then you have to examine what they're fighting for. And that's how you can kind of distinguish how bad they are. Like the Free Syrian Army, where they, you know, they were basically normal guys fighting for freedom. They wanted to, you know, be able to smoke cigarettes in public, and which they can do now under the government. But after after they won, as opposed to you know the the Islamists who wanted to you know make smoking illegal and alcohol illegal, they just wanted freedom. The Free Syrian Army guys. Their problem was is that they relied too strongly on the extremists to fight a lot of the battles, and before they knew it, the tail was wagging the dog in that aspect. All right, so you're here in Syria. It's 2012. There's this, these battles going on. Different groups are are there. You were about to leave. You're, you're, you were planning to leave December 31st, 2012. That was your last day in Syria. But then plans changed. What happened there? I was about 45 minutes from the Turkish border on my way home. And that's when I got rolled up. Basically, the cab was just cruising down the street. And uh, Silver Jeep Cherokee came from the oncoming lane, blocked off the road. I thought we just averted an accident. So for the first second or two, I like smiled and was like, whoa. And then the doors opened and the terrorists got out and my smile disappeared. They were armed to the teeth. Guy in the front seat was cloaked head to toe in black. He had an AK. Guy in the back seat had a Chrome 45, I think it was. And they just took me from the van, uh, the van, took me from the cab, put me in the backseat of the Cherokee, very gently, no yelling, no hitting. And a second later, after they pulled my cap over my eyes, we were moving. The whole thing probably took a minute. I mean, and when you were, when that happened, like what was going through your mind? Like, were you just like panicked or were you, it happened so fast you couldn't even feel anything? Pretty, pretty much the second. I, I was just in shock. I was in shock. It's called capture shock. Uh, when the, the door just opened and I saw the guy in, Jet black, you know, just like in a movie, jumps out with his AK, and I just like froze and just watched him come over to me, open the door, and he probably saw the look on my face. He just grabbed me by my arm, very gently took me out of the cab, led me over to the Cherokee, placed me in the back seat, got in after me, and closed the door. A second later, he pulled my ski cap because it gets cold in Syria over my eyes, and he leaned me forward and just pressed the barrel of the AK to my temple. A second later, we were moving. And at this point, you still didn't know who captured I mean, I didn't really, you, right? You still didn't know who 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 had captured right. you. No, not yet. I mean, I had a feeling who who it was because you know this is all before the rise of ISIS. At this time, Al Nusra Front were the number one bad guys in the country, like the guys you didn't want to be taken by. ISIS was nobody even heard of them at this point. They were not really a heavy presence yet. So I, I kind of figured it was them, but I wasn't sure. So the whole way to the first jail, I just, I didn't say a word. I just kept my hands up, my mouth shut, and just said to myself, all right, what are you going to do? What are you going to say when you get to wherever you're going? Because obviously, you know, you're going to be questioned. So I, I just kind of thought about what I was going to say. And, you know, I, I'd been in the country for like 18 days before that. So I knew a lot of high-level Free Syrian army commanders that whose names I could throw around. And, you know, traditionally in Arab culture, a lot of wars before this, if this happened, then you said, all right, look, I was with uh, Sheikh Modar and General Hassoun, and they contacted those guys. They would turn you over to them if they asked. And if they did contact those guys, I knew that they would say, all right, look, give them to me. So I knew I, I had a chance. So I just tried to stay positive and focus on how to make that happen. 
Yeah, I thought this was interesting. You said immediately, like, okay, you had the shock of being captured, but then the shock wore off. You immediately came up with a plan to ensure that you stayed alive and two got released. You had the plan, okay, drop these names possibly if it worked, but like staying alive, like you, I don't know, immediately got to the idea that like, I need to make these people like me if I want to stay alive. And so how did you go about making these guys who you still didn't know who were, they could have been terrorists, Islamic terrorists, How'd you plan to like make these guys like you and cross those cultural barriers? It was, you know, by, by that, by the time I started thinking like that, I was uh, at the jail already in the basement. So I just had a couple of minutes. They gave me a hot glass of tea and over the tea, I was like, all right, you know, what's the main question you want to ask yourself is how do I avoid, avoid being tortured? So you have to make them like you. So I said, how do you make somebody like you who, you know, hates you? You make them laugh. I mean, it's just human instinct. I mean, nobody doesn't like the guy who makes them laugh. So uh, I just kind of formulated that strategy and uh, and I went with it. And in regards to like knowing what they would laugh at, I didn't know what they would laugh at. You never know. But I spent enough time on the front lines with, with the FSA guys who some of them were pretty hardcore religious and, you know, they loved my sense of humor. So I just kind of, you know, went off of that you know, experience and, you know, it worked. Yeah, that was funny. I mean, some of these guys, even though they were, you know, probably not fans of America, like they, a lot of them were steeped in American culture. So you could make references to American pop culture from like 20 years ago or 15 years ago and they would get it. Sometimes. And when they didn't get it, you know, it's like, all right, you could just kind of laugh at them inside your head because they don't, <laughs> they don't know what you're talking about and, it, and you're kind of mocking them. But in terms of like fashion, like they love American clothes these guys. That's one of the reasons why, you know, they, they like me as, as funny as that sounds. Cause you know, they took my bag when I was captured and, you know, you'd see guys walking into the uh, cell a couple days later, uh, later wearing Timberland cargos. And you know, what I was wearing, the guys would come in the cell and they constantly be like, Hey, how much was that? How much were those pants? How much was that vest? How much was that hoodie? They, they love American clothes. So uh, that, that was something that I, that I was a little surprised at. And a lot of these guys you described, like they're young, like some of them are like 18, 19, early 20s, like they're not 30 or 40 years old. Right, right. I mean, this, this is a, it's not what we're used to seeing in, you know, the videos from Afghanistan where it's like, you know, these old tribal guys. These guys were, you know, mostly uh, veterans from Iraq, you know, so they're in their 20s and 30s, a lot of, a lot of the fighters. And, you know, kids in their teens who look up to them are, are joining left and right. So that the the group that had me, most of the, you know, like General Muhammad, who was like the main man or became the main man, he was, you know, I think he was like around 32 and the Emir was around the same age as him. So they, they were really young guys. And so besides trying to make these guys like you, another thing you picked up really quick is that, and you, you seem to understand intuitively, is that you had to also assert yourself at the same time as well. You, you had to show you couldn't be pushed around. Like, how did you know that that also would work too, to sort of gain respect? I wouldn't phrase it like that because, you know, if, if I carried myself like, you know, like, like I'm not a man to be pushed around, they would easily show me, <laughs> you know, how insignificant I was. You know, this is their backyard, their country, their house. I just tried to act like, it, you know, I wasn't scared. So, you know, to, to kind of, you know, you're in a very harsh environment with the harshest of people. So if you show me up bulls, you know, they'll, they'll respect that. But as far as, you know, taking it further than that, like, you know, like, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a man to be reckoned with. I didn't take it that far because, you know, you have to, well, well, earning respect, you have to show respect. So it's a, it's a very thin line. 
Right. So when they captured you, they started questioning you, like, who are you? Why you're here? And you're like, I'm a photographer. Why didn't they believe you? Why didn't they release me? You showed them the pictures you've been taking. Like, who did they think you were? And why did they think it was important to keep you held hostage? I, I actually didn't get a chance to show them the pictures. They uploaded them later after the interrogation. But, uh, I mean, they they had information that they said they have information that there's CIA operatives in the area, which, you know, they probably did. But, you know, to them, any Westerner is a potential CIA agent. They think anybody who has an iPhone is a CIA agent, you know, which is ridiculous since, you know, most of those guys, <laughs> they all carry Blackberries, but they don't know this. So uh, it, it's just it, it, because I'm American, I'm a white guy. You know, I have to be a potential CIA agent. They have to grab me and investigate me. And at that time, you know, they were just basically doing that to any Westerner that they came across. They were asking me if I knew where any other journalists were. And I did because I met several in uh, Southern Turkey. But, you know, I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> I'm not going to create a situation where other people are in my, my situation. So uh, it's just a very simple way of thinking. So the first few months, they held you in a hospital what were the conditions like there in this place? The conditions were, I mean, for me, they weren't that bad because I, I kind of connected with General Muhammad in our interrogation and he, he liked me. So nobody touched me, nobody, you know, embarrassed me or, or, or mistreated me in any way. They fed me all right. They took me to the bathroom. I could knock on the door uh, whenever I wanted something. It was not that bad. Uh, for me personally, for other people, you know, you hear them torturing the hell out of guys right up the hallway for hours on end sometimes, you know, the different screams, obviously, they're not the same guy for hours, but you hear people being shot outside or, I mean, you know, you hear the gunshots, so you, you, and it's a court that I found out. So, you know, you know, a lot of these are probably sentences being carried out. But for me personally, the first month and five days wasn't that bad as ridiculous as that might, might sound, because they were being nice to me and respectful. Who were your fellow prisoners in, in, this, in this hospital? At first, five days in, I started making a, making a lot of noise to convince them that I wasn't a CIA agent. So they shut me up. They put me in a new cell with 18 regime POWs. Uh, these are soldiers that fight for the government. And uh, they're mostly Alawi, which is a uh, Shia sect. And uh, the the Sunnis hate them. That's what Bashar Assad is. So they threw me in with these guys um, for five days. And they were like the best guys I ever met in my life. They they welcomed me and I was shocked. They welcomed me into their little world. We ate together. We exercised, you know, played games when the lights were on. And it was really refreshing. Unfortunately, five days in, they threw about 13 Shabiha. Those are like militants who fight for the regime and they, they hate those guys. They consider them traitors to the revolution. So uh, because the cell was so overcrowded, they moved me back to solitary for 13 days. And then after 13 days, that's when they put me in a room with another American who basically had the opposite effect as the Syrian soldiers who were like my, my boys. This guy turned out to be, you know, a nightmare on top of a nightmare. Well, which is surprising because you think, oh, an American compatriot, I can relate to this guy. I think that'd be a welcome change. Like what made this guy a nightmare for uh, I mean, where to begin? Like I described in the book, he was basically the equivalent to journalists of what Gomer Pyle was to Marines in Full Metal Jacket. 
I mean, the guy, he just couldn't do anything right. He would just constantly piss off the guards without even trying. And on top of that, like the thing that the precipitated incident was, you know, right after I was thrown in the cell, he told me that he was in the country to write a story about Austin Tice, who was the first journalist to go missing. And he's still missing. And when I found out that, you know, that's why he was there. And he said that he was, you know, the whole point of him being there was to make money off this story. You know, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because that's like saying, you know, I was in country to do a story about somebody in the same position as you and get paid off of it. So it kind of just like rubbed me the wrong way. And the more time that went by, you know, the more disloyal he seemed to be. Like he told me he would shoot me in the head if they'd let him go because this is war and that's what you have to do to survive which is ridiculous. You know, as Americans, we, you know, we were kind of raised with values and, you know, you stand side by side with the guy next to you in a war zone, even if you don't like him. And meanwhile, the guy who I'm locked in a room with is telling me, no, man, I'd actually shoot you in the head if they let me go. So, you know, these things kind of snowballed very quickly to the point where, uh, you know, I just, I just couldn't stand him. Yeah. I mean, I I thought that was like, no one liked him. Like there was absolutely no one. Like you didn't like him, the prisoners didn't like him, the guards didn't like him. I think we've all met people like that, where they're just their personality just and, rubs and everyone the wrong way. Yeah, I think we've all met them, and we can all agree that they're always the person who thinks they're the smartest one in the room. And that, that was his problem, you know. Like he uh, he thinks because he has a PhD that he's like some kind of genius, but at the same time, he was homeless when he got abducted. He never admitted this to me. He admitted it after he came home in an interview. And it's, it's just like, you know, you're, you're a homeless guy with a PhD. And to me, that's worse than being like a crackhead who's homeless, because at least the crackhead has an excuse. He's crackhead. You know, what's the, the guy with a PhD? Like, what's your excuse for being homeless? So he was just like this incredibly pompous guy who, like I said, he would just, nobody liked him. The guards would come in the room to sell. They'd take us to the bathroom. They'd be totally cool, just mellow. And then all of a sudden you hear them screaming and yelling. And I just look at him and I'm like, what are they, you know, what are they doing? What'd you, what'd you do? And he's like, my ass crack was showing. And it's just like, yeah, that's a, in, in Islam, that's a sin. And you can't show between your knees and your belly button. And it would drive them nuts. Like they would start getting extremely violent and hostile. And I'm just like, dude, you know, like you're 44 years old. I got to tell you to pull your pants up. You know, and it's happened like several times where you're like, Theo, you got to pull your pants up. Come on, buddy. <laughs> and it was just like constantly, you know, incidents like this or, or like the part of the book where they, they throw water down on the floor. They, they throw a bunch of water down on the floor in our cell, tell us to scrub it and squeegee it out. And he leaves this gigantic puddle in the middle of the floor because he can't even squeegee a room right. And it's like, you know, 40 degrees in the room. So it's not going to dry. And we have to live like this until, you know, basically a week later when they do it again and we get to, we have to squeegee it out. And it was, it was just a nightmare just from beginning to end. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. So we've had experts on the podcast on the topic of networking over the years. And one thing they've all said that stood out to me is that it's our weak ties are the things, our relationships that often bring us the biggest opportunities in our career or in business. Now, weak ties are not close friends or family members. These are friends of friends, acquaintances. And if you want to increase the number of weak ties in your network, can you check out Shape, the number one professional networking platform that uses your experience, interest, and goals to help you make the right connections. Whether you're looking for investors, a co-founder, a new job opportunity, or just inspiring conversations, Shaper can connect you to professionals 
professionals who truly want to share tips and help. Each day, I suggest 15 people with similar goals and interests for you to meet. Then all you have to do is take a few minutes to swipe through your daily profiles. Once you find a connection, set up coffees, and you can start networking and start hashing things out. I've got an account. It's pretty cool. Sign up. I told them what my goals were for the, you know, what I'm looking for in the networking platform. And then, yeah, every day I get new people, whether or not it lines up. I swipe right. If there's not a not a good swipe, then I swipe left. Pretty dang cool. You can download the app today or check out Shaper online at shaper.co. That's co, not .com. Shaper.co. That's S-H-A-P-R. S-H-A-P-R dot C-O to learn more about Shaper, download the app, and improve the way you network. Also by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is an online streaming service that gives in-depth information on a huge variety of different topics, virtually anything you're interested in learning about. The information is reliable, fact-based, and presented in a truly engaging way. There are thousands of lectures to explore on topics like history, human behavior, science, business, travel, cooking, and more. One course I always recommend people check out if they're going to check out The Great Courses Plus is a course taught by one of my professors I had in college, Dr. J. Rufus Fears, and the course is called Famous Greeks. It's a great series of lectures, gives you the just like an overall view of Greek history he starts with the Iliad and you end all the way Alexander the Great and his campaigns. The way he describes the story is super descriptive. It's captivating. It's engaging. It's really interesting. And docile Dr. Fears had a big influence on what I'm doing here at The Art of Manliness. So check it out. Famous Greeks. You're going to love The Great Courses Plus. Each topic is written by experts who are knowledgeable, but also passionate about their subjects. Watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus on your own schedule at any time from anywhere. Binge an entire course or skip around to check out different portions of the topic. Here's where you can go to get a special offer. As one of my listeners, you can sample it for free with unlimited access to learn about anything. Start your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Here it is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Get a free unlimited access to learn about anything. And while you're there, check out Famous Greeks by Dr. J. Rufus Fears. And now back to the show. Yeah, that's a big hamper on morale for you. So, I mean, during this time when you guys, the first time you were to, together, like you you all tried to like start hatching an escape plan, right? Yeah. About two weeks in, I decided like I, I, I can't be in a room with this guy anymore. He was the motivator of me wanting to escape. It had nothing to do with getting away without kind. I wanted to get away from him. And uh, I was just like, all right, I got to plan something. So uh, he, it, well, one night I'm just staring at the door and it's just a wood panel door holding us in. You know, they lock it with a key and they leave the key inside. And, you know, a wood panel door obviously has these the panel parts where, where it gets thin. And the wood was really, really thin where the panels were, maybe like, you know, a centimeter. And I'm looking at the thick part of the wood and there's like this giant silver dollar size impression that somebody carved into the door. So one night I'm just staring at it and just matter of factly, I'm like, yeah, how'd that mark it in the door? And he's like, I put it there. And I'm like, why? And he's like, I was bored. And uh, what'd you use? He's like, I used a spoon. And uh, later on, he admitted that he was trying to make, make a peephole in the middle of the door, you know, because I guess they... You know, wouldn't know what that is. <laughs> it's only the size of a silver dollar. And I said, all right, well, if you could do this with a spoon, we can, we can work here. So for the next few days, like I stole a three inch flathead brass screw from the bathroom. And a few days after that, I stole a flat bracket that fit perfectly into the head of the screw. And I put it through the top uh, right corner of the panel in the bottom of the door, which is about the size and width of a milk crate in and out in less than five minutes, you know, barely stripped the screw. And uh, now we had a real peephole that they wouldn't see. You know, you can only see their sneakers. So uh, you could tell who was out there. And uh, my plan was simple. We just perforate all around the sides of this panel 
and wait for an opportunity to kick it out in one shot so it's not there's not a lot of noise and we run for it. He refused to follow that plan. He said, "No, I'm not doing that. You know, uh, let's let's you know basically put the perforate all around the doorknob where the wood is like three inches thick. You know, it just wasn't possible. And then we'll punch that out and turn the key. Like ridiculous, like like totally impossible. And uh, he refused to do my plan. So I said, all right, you know, because I was just not thinking clearly and I knew that it wasn't going to work. So he would have to go back to my plan. But within two hours, obviously, you know, the uh, bracket was stripping the screw right away, which is bad because we don't have like a lot of screws to keep going with when my plan comes to fruition again. But unfortunately, General Muhammad heard the bracket strip the screw and it made a click sound. And then, boom, he busted in with a couple of thugs, started searching the door. And it's kind of funny because it's like, you know, you expect him to find the mark that I made. But he didn't because I stayed along the steel plate to hide it that surrounded the doorknob. No, his flashlight falls on this giant impression that my brilliant cellmate put there before I even entered the cell. And he thought that that's what I was doing. So uh, he got a little upset and the result was he took our beds and tortured the hell out of us and transferred us to a new prison, which was basically the beginning of the darkest stage of my captivity. And this is when things like the, the, they weren't being nice anymore. This is when things got ugly. No. Yeah. I mean, it changed within, as soon as he saw that mark that my cellmate put in the door, he called me over and he looked at me. And usually General Muhammad was like, he's like this really fascinating character in the book because you're used to just seeing these, these dark, evil terrorists with no sense of humor and no personality. He was the opposite. Like he was a very charismatic, very funny leader that, that just his men loved. And I, I actually enjoyed talking to him when he would come in the South because he was such a cool guy when he was around me. But as soon as he saw that I was trying to escape, even though it was a completely different mark in the door, like this darkness came over his eyes. And I saw the other half that Theo told me about my cellmate because he hated Theo. He hated him. And uh, he told me about, you know, things that he did to him before I entered the cell, which weren't pleasant. And I saw this look come over his eyes and I was just like, okay, I'm about to meet that guy. And uh, he was not as pleasant as the one I'd been used to. What kind of torturing techniques do these guys use on you guys? On me, basically what they do is they take a tire, a car tire, and they force it around your knees when, when you're sitting on the floor. So your knees are bent up to your chin, and they force a car tire over it. And then they take a, a steel rod or an iron rod, and they slide it over the tire but under your knees in the crook. And what that does is it locks it into place, so now you can't bend your knees. And you're handcuffed. <clears throat> excuse me. You're handcuffed, so they flip you over, and you're on your face with your feet in the air. And then they take this very thick cable about as thick as a nightstick. And they start whacking the bottoms of your feet with it. And let me tell you something. It, it hurts. <laughs> I mean, whenever you see it on TV or the movies, they always use like these thin wooden sticks or paddles almost. And it, it doesn't really look that painful, but uh, trust me, man, it is hell. And if they really don't like you, what they do is they'll strike the sides of your feet and they'll hit your ankles. Um, they didn't do that to me on this occasion. They did it to my cellmate because he was his ankles were bleeding all over the floor when he got back. But that, that's what they did on this occasion. Um, there, there were other prisoners that you would hear stories about that they would hang from pipes by handcuffs. 
one guy they bit his ear off. They used high voltage tasers. Uh, I took I took some bolts here and there later on. But uh, in the hospital, that was the main method of of torture. Yeah, well, I think I wrote, sent you an email before the interview. Like I was, like, I physically winced. Like you're, you're just describing right now. I started getting heebie-jeebies thinking about getting your feet hit with that cable. Oh, geez. Yeah, and it, and it's and and the the environment where they choose to do it makes it even worse because they bring you into the boiler room, and you know there's a reason why Wes Craven chose the boiler room for a Nightmare on Elm Street. It's just like the scariest room in any building. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, and you got blood stains all over the floor and it's just like one single bulb hanging. So everyone's shadows and you're blindfolded, but you can always see through the bottom of the blindfold. And, you know, and, and we've all seen the terrorist videos with James Foley, you know, picture eight of those guys. Cause that's what they were all wearing. They all have that costume. So they're, you're, you're, you're basically in a room with a bunch of these guys dressed like that. And this is what's going on. And they have little kids in there watching, they're teaching them, priming them. And it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a very unpleasant experience. And, you know, even when you're not the guy in the tire in the boiler room, you know, there are times where, you know, they take us down to the bathroom and we have to walk right by that room as this is going on. And you just hear them screaming and yelling and it echoes throughout the hallways. And it's just surreal. So you got moved from the hospital to this place. It's kind of like an electrical facility. And that was, that was the conditions were even worse than the hospital. Like you said, the hospital was actually pretty good. Like what changed in this, this electrical facility? Like why was it so bad? Uh, the, the, yeah, the electrical institute, I think it's like a college slash facility type of thing for, uh, your regular citizens. But, uh, now it's, it's, it was probably one of the biggest terrorist bases in the world. Like if you saw a satellite shot in this place, it, it's like basically an entire college campus turned into a terrorist base just to give perspective. And it was, I like I described it in the book. It was literally the dark side of hell. I mean, we were in hell before. Now we were in the dark side. And what made it the worst was uh, the hunger. Like that was the main form of torture in this place that they inflicted on us, hunger and darkness. A couple of days in, they, they transferred us to a cell where we spent most of the uh, almost 40 days. And it was dark almost all the time. They barely fed us. And like you can, when you're hungry for, you know, going on for like 30 hours without eating, and then they, you just get a piece of bread. And, or a piece of, or, or like a little saucer with some halal and you have to share it with the, the guy next to you. I mean, it's just, it's physically and emotionally draining. And on top of that, you, there's no light crawling with bed bugs. So you can't even de-louse. So you just feel these bugs crawling all over you, sucking your blood and people die from that. You know, if, if you read about prisoner of war experiences, if you don't de-louse, you know, these things, they'll suck you dry. So we were in a really bad spot. They would blast music for hours on end, like right outside our door. And then there were the bathroom trips, which were a nightmare unto themselves. You know, we'd have to go to the bathroom like once a day. And uh, it was like walking the gauntlet on the way down there. They didn't really physically torture me that much there. I got flogged with a garden hose once, but mostly it was just, they, they were just torturing my cellmate. Me, they pretty much left alone and just let me suffer with with hunger and darkness and bed bugs. But we lived like this for close to 40 days. 
And after that, they transferred us back to the hospital. I mean, like during all this time, like what kept you going, especially in this really dark time? Like, was it, did you like fall back on faith? There was like stoic philosophy, existentialism? Like, what was it? During that time, man, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. You know, there's always this will that you want to get home because you know that your loved ones are suffering. And if you don't get home to them, you know, you're just basically ruining their lives as well as yours. But, you know, my cellmate was a huge inspiration to me because I would look at him and be like, don't be like him. Because the Electrical Institute broke whatever was left of him, and he was just hiding under the covers all day, all night. He never came out unless, you know, it was to eat, go to the bathroom, or pick bed bugs off himself. Because eventually they put light in the room, but... I mean, it, it never worked. Maybe it worked like less than 10% of the time because the electricity was always out. And when you're locked in a room with somebody like that who, who won't talk, who won't come out from under the covers, you know, this is a 44-year-old man. You know, you can either curl up in a ball and give up like him, or you can keep going. And I just chose to keep going. So you got moved back to the hospital. You were there for a bit. Then they moved you to a warehouse, right? Well, the, the warehouse was, a couple of jails first from the hospital, you know, they threw the Moroccan guy in with us. And then from there we were moved to a villa out in the country, which was like a two, two and a half hour drive. Really, really intense experience. I mean, there was a gunfight at one of the checkpoints, you know, the guys, our transport lost two guys during that really intense. Like the suicide bombers were out standing like 20 feet away from us, ready to go. And we got to a villa, General Muhammad's villa had a prison in the basement like all Syrian villas. And then we were transferred back into Aleppo into the hands of another terrorist group for about a month and a half. And I was back with the soldiers at that point. And then after that, that's when we were transferred to the warehouse. Gotcha. Hey, and you mentioned the Moroccan. He kind of joined you and became a part of you and Theo's little group there. This guy sounded crazy because he he had, he he knew. Oh my God. Right. Tell us about this guy. The Moroccan was, (laughs) I mean, he was, I mean, as much as I hated Theo, I hated the Moroccan. And and this guy was extremely intelligent. Extremely intelligent and a psychopath at the same time. And basically his story was almost too hard to believe, like a lot of my story. But long story short is he went to Syria uh, from Morocco after stealing his sister's car and selling it so he can finance the trip because he got into a big fight with his dad. And when he got there, he started pretending that he was a doctor to the point where he was working with Doctors Without Borders. Like he literally knew people who were in that organization <laughs> that I found out, like I confirmed a lot of it after I came home and uh, joined Al Nosra, the Al Nosra Front, the terrorist group, as a doctor. And needless to say, he had no degree or no education at being a doctor. So it didn't really take him that long to figure out his, his game. And after marrying a woman under a false, this false, false identity, which is a big deal in that part of the world, like a half hour after the wedding, they shot him. He was driving in a car. They got pulled over the same fashion I did. They shot him in the leg, threw him in the trunk and brought him to the uh, hospital where they basically locked him in the torture room, cuffed him to a bed and uh, left him there for like a week without any medical attention, just sh- shoved the catheter in him and let it empty out into a bucket. Unbelievable that this guy survived. By the time they threw him in with us, you know, his leg was just, 
the bullet hole was healed over, but it was so bloated. Like it looked like it was going to pop. And, uh, his fe- you know, and you could feel his femur was just broken. And uh, he was basically, uh, like I said, he was like 6'3", 230 pounds. And I got along with him at first because he spoke English and lived in the States for 12 years. He got deported for, you know, falsifying his personal information on a Banana Republic job application, if you can believe that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just you can't make this up. And he was very dominant. And that's when I started fighting with him because, you know, he was, he was trying to be like the, the, the head guy in the cell. And, you know, I'm not going to be bossed around by anybody if you don't have a gun and especially somebody with a broken leg. But Theo, my cellmate became his property. It was basically once I started fighting with the Moroccan, Theo was his property. So it was like two against one. And that all changed when we were transferred into a cell with the soldiers again, who I was, who I became friends with early on. So now I had like over 20 guys with me and they were just basically on their own because the soldiers hated Theo because he's Theo and they hated the Moroccan because he's their enemy. He's, you know, an admitted member of a terrorist organization and, you know, the American who's basically his sidekick is not going to really hold favor with them. Not, not just because he's working with their enemy, but because he's, betraying his country you know they don't hate america the soldiers at least at that point but uh they didn't love america either because of our government and you know it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are when you see somebody you know who's not standing up for where he's from and basically betraying it you can't respect them so that's basically why the soldiers straight off the bat didn't like him so things just got worse with Theo as you guys got moved along and you got moved with the Moroccan too. And you reached a point where the Moroccan got taken away one night and he didn't come back, right? Right. The Moroccan, like I said, he was a big dude. So the prison that I broke out of, the windows, you know, like any basement windows, they're high up off the ground and, you know, they're very narrow. And uh, one night they just came down, a whole bunch of guys. And we never got visitors that late. So it was like a really odd occurrence and we could feel it that something was going to happen it's weird how you get this intuition when something's about to happen over there and we heard them lining up outside the door and the, we had to face the wall every time they came in we weren't allowed to look at them and the Moroccan said he's like there's a lot of people out there and, and you can tell he was scared and i was just like yeah and they came in they asked him his name he said his name and then they took him and he never came back. And this is after like four months of being stuck in a room with this guy for 24 hours a day, seven days a week with no end in sight. So it was refreshing to have him gone. We found out they killed him later on. And because he was gone, now that's when we started planning the escape because there was no way he could fit through the window. So once he was gone, it created the opportunity. Right. And initially, Theo was on board, but then he had like this this like change of heart. He said like, I'm actually going to turn you in if you try to escape. Yeah. Well, I mean, escapes usually don't work out the first time, (laughs) you know? And it didn't work out the first time when we ended up at the Electrical Institute. It didn't work out the first time on this occasion. So I figured out why it didn't work and I amended the plan. And by then he was like, no, I changed my mind. I'm not doing it. If you try to do it, I'm going to knock on the door and tell on you. And I was just like, you're going to tell him, you're going to turn me into Al Qaeda. And he's like, yeah. So uh, I didn't think he was 
being serious. I thought he was just, you know, being himself. And when I went over to the window, he knocked on the door and loud. Like he was going to, he was literally going to rat me out. And he admits that he did all this, by the way. This isn't like something, my word against his, he admits that he did this. And uh, he turned around with his chest out, like, like, you know, like I'm a tough guy. I got Al Qaeda's got my back. So uh, the only way to get him back on board was to make him so miserable that he wouldn't want to be stuck in a room with me anymore. <laughs> so that's what I did. It took about three hours. What did you do? Uh, I just insulted him and broke on him for <laughs> just nonstop for like three hours. Just about, you know, what a disgrace he was to our country, like how... You know, how it's bad enough the terrorists are holding me here. Now you're the one holding me here. How, you know, you're, you're going to let, you know, his mother was like 79, 80 years old. I was like, you're going to let your mother die not knowing what happened to you or worse, having to watch you get your head cut off online. You, you know, just stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of language that I don't want to use here, applying that to him until he basically was just like, okay, okay. He's like, I can't take it anymore. Type of type of thing. He's like, I didn't say I was completely turned off to it, and that's when we started, you know, planning it again. And you know, obviously, he's like, well, we have to wait three days because he was, you know, he was doing everything he could to try to thwart the attempt. And you know, three days we were we were due to be transferred, so he was hoping we'd be transferred or they'd throw somebody else in with us, which they did twice in that cell after the Moroccan was gone. But they always took him away. So if if those things happened, we would have had to scrap the idea. But, you know, fortunately for me, it didn't happen. So he had to go, he had to go forward with it. So we'll, we'll let people check out the books. So they can get the escape parks. It's, it's interesting what happens. Um, right, particularly yeah. with Theo. Well, Matt, yeah. is there some place people can go to learn more about your work in the book? I have a website, MatthewSchreier.com. The book is on Amazon, The Dawn Prayer, or How to Survive in a Secret Syrian Terrorist Prison. That's the best way to learn about me and my experience. And, and it's a completely different book than any that have come out before, you know, because I'm not trying to get your pity. I don't deserve it. Nobody told me to go over there. And it's actually pretty funny because I'm not trying to make you cry, make, make you cry a river. So if, if anybody really wants to learn about this, that's probably the best way. Just read the book. Fantastic. Well, Matthew Schreier, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Right. Thank you for having me, man. Ever have another book? I'd love to come back. My guest here is Matthew Schreier. He is the author of the book, The Dawn Prayer. It's available on Amazon.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash dawnprayer, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find all of our podcast archives there. We've got over 480 episodes, as well as the thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finance, health and fitness, relationships, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the A1 Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.